It's my great pleasure to welcome Will Rosenzweig to the new school. Will, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Um, Will is one of the more interesting human beings I've met for some time. He is the, we just met uh, about an hour and a half ago. Uh, he is the co-founder and managing director of Physic Ventures, and he leads the firm's venture origination activities and supports portfolio companies in the areas of entrepreneurial leadership, business design, brand strategy, and consumer marketing. And he's currently working closely with firms that include uh, Energy Hub, Good Guide, uh, Pharmaca, Integrative Pharmacy, OWN, Recycle Bank, Revolution Foods, and Yumly. Um, in other entries I found on the web, uh, he was described accurately as a mime, a magician, and a master gardener. And uh, I learned that uh, Will was a, an accomplished mime in college. Um, he is still a magician, but only for uh, birthday parties of seven-year-olds. Uh, but he is definitely a master gardener and is passionate about that. And in fact, his name, uh, Rosenzweig, means rose branch, which is a very nice uh, coincidence. Um, and um, Will has thought a lot about how you take the passion that so many of us in this room feel for um, making a difference in sustainability, health, justice, and the like, um, and how the, that visionary quality intersects with the pragmatism necessary uh, for entrepreneurs uh, and multinational corporations and governments to create effective collaborations that actually move these visions into the reality of uh, the global economy. Uh, he co-founded the Republic of Tea, where he was Minister of Progress. Uh, he, uh, in many ways, saved the TED conferences from obscurity, where they were about to plunge after the first one and helped uh, them toward a new incarnation. He's been a leader in Adwala uh, and many other uh, uh, brands and startups. And he taught uh, for almost a decade social entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley. And in 2010, received the Oslo Business for Peace Award, which is the world's leading award for ethical business work. So, well, we decided we would start as advertised with uh, food as, as business, as movement. Um, and I thought um, maybe just a, a way to walk into that was to ask you to tell us uh, how the Republic of Tea came to be. How much time do you have? <laughs> it, it was a, it was a, a fluke. Um, very, very serendipitous. I uh, was uh, at a turning point in my life. I went to a conference in rural New Jersey for the Social Venture Network. I would say it was 
one of those outpost moments <laughs> where you're in a strange land with strange people. I was supposed to fly back to San Francisco and I missed my flight because the transportation didn't come and I was fortunate to meet somebody in the lobby of the hotel who offered me a ride to the airport and we went to the he had also been at the conference and we went to the airport and turned out we were on the same flight from New Jersey to San Francisco. We sat next to each other somewhere over Philadelphia. The flight attendant came and offered us both coffee and we said, uh, do you have tea? <laughs> both of us. And that was rather strange. And uh, it was one of those um, old DC-9s with four engines and it was really hard headwinds. So the flight was almost seven hours from New Jersey to San Francisco. We talked about tea the entire time. We talked, I mean, first of all, we, we'd sipped the tea and it was terrible. And we both, you know, just made that face. This is not really tea. And it turned out we both were fascinated with Eastern philosophy. And we talked about how tea was really um, a cultural root in many parts of the world, in China and Japan and in Australia and in, in the UK, of course. We talked about um, just how tea had been sort of since the, the Boston Tea Party had been maligned, you know, had been sort of politically incorrect. Anyway, six hours later, I said, let's start a tea company. <laughs> and this was really born out of an unmet need, right, that we ourselves felt. He said, great, I've got a, I've got a name for the company, the Republic of Tea. Um, that was sort of near and dear to him. He had been the co-founder of the Banana Republic. And, um, and I just blurted out of my mouth, great, I'll be the minister of progress. <laughs> it just came like that. And, and so what happened was we just started this incredibly dynamic dialogue. We went our separate ways at the airport and we started to write faxes to each other. He was about 15 years older than me and I was really a wannabe aspiring entrepreneur. I had a one-year-old son. I had woken up to the responsibility of supporting a family. I was highly motivated. And I was not sure, you know, when I, when I had meant to board that plane that morning, I thought I was gonna do something completely different. I came home and I'll never forget, I told my wife holding a one-year, you know, a little baby, I want to start a tea company. And she almost dropped the baby. <laughs> um, but anyway, Mel and I, Mel Ziegler and I, and his, and his wife Patricia exchanged about 400 pages of faxes over six weeks about what this could be. It was just the dream of the idea for the business. And to make a long story short, at the end of that six weeks, Mel grew a bit impatient with me. He was like, well, go ahead and start the company already. you know. And he was like, I'm kind of done you know, dreaming about this with you. I really thought you were going to start the company. And I, huh, I don't really know enough about tea to do that. So I spent two years working in other jobs, supporting my family, but in the meantime, learning a lot about tea. And at the end of that two years, I, I went back to him and I said, I'm ready to start the company. I now have the confidence that I have the, the right product that could really be an innovation for the market and a way to present it. And uh, as it turned out, this these faxes that we had, Doubleday wanted to publish them. And so the faxes turned into a book called The Republic of Tea, How an Idea Becomes a Business, and the advance from the book funded the company. 
And, 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 and didn't the book then become a, a case history in business schools? And yeah, so this was a book where I was sort of a wannabe entrepreneur and I was expressing all of my ideals about what business could be. And Mel was playing a, a kind of a, a voice of a high-minded philosopher of sorts and he'd question my assumptions and it was a very... Um, you know, very, very meaningful collaboration for me. But the book was edited by a wonderful woman named um, Harriet Rubin, who started an imprint called Currency, which was really all about business books with meaning. And um, she took these faxes, which I still have, and she figured out sort of where the narrative structure in them was. And she, she'd take them out, you know, she was like sculpting. She took away the excess and just left the essence. And then she would ask us in places, well, what was going on in your head here? Could you write a little reflection? And anyway, the book, the book then became a, a real, um, very popular on business school campuses because it was one of the first entrepreneurship books that really um, talked about business with purpose. And the book, to your earlier point, had the idealistic dreams of myself, sort of the hard-edged wisdom of a, of a successful entrepreneur. And then the book concluded with the business plan that I wrote. I wrote probably 20 business plans, but the one that I finally chose to start the business with is in the appendix of the book, along with the founding mission and constitution, if you will, of the, of the Republic of Tea. And um, the book ends before the company actually gets started. So it, it ends in a mystery, but now it's, this year we're celebrating the 20 year anniversary of the Republic of Tea. So what have you learned from the 20 years since you founded it that you didn't know at the start? Oh, oh that's, that's, there's a lot of things. Let's see, I'll, I'll try to. Um, three things. Yeah, three things. So the, the first thing is you, you never really know where you're going to end up when you start, and you have to be willing to take the, the leap of faith. Um, but you also have to be really well equipped at the beginning with the resources you need to get to a, a destination. I mean, if you think about it, of setting out on a journey. I mean, entrepreneurs often think about that they're that they're working on, you know, in the terrestrial <laughs> sphere, like on the ground. But actually, when you're trying to do something really big and bold, you're up in space. There's not a lot of things to hold on to. So you need to, you need to, before you depart, you have to know where you're going next. It doesn't have to be the end point, but there has to be an interim stop, and you need to have the resources to get there. I'd say that's one thing. Um, I think another thing that I've learned, I've learned a lot about partnerships and the need to synthesize different people's goals and ambitions and both um, you know, emotional needs, material needs. And it's very helpful now when I work with entrepreneurs to have these kinds of conversations because oftentimes new businesses are born in a state of a honeymoon you know, where everything is about possibility and the hard work has not really begun. So really trying to dig into the, the, the foundation there. And probably the third thing I've um, learned is that there are a lot of opportunities to kind of transform or exploit the... Um, I don't want to say, well, maybe I'll say the weaknesses in the incumbent infrastructure. 
and um, in some ways to potentially challenge or threaten that, um, and at other times sort of dance with it. So I was actually at the headquarters for Lipton last week, where I had gone the first time 20 years ago. I actually, when I started the Republic of Tea, we, we took a very challenging position to, to, to Thomas J. Lipton. You know, and even in the beginning of the Republic of Tea book, it says, with, with due respect and full apologies to Thomas J. Lipton, we think your product kind of sucks. You know, <laughs> this is not tea as we know it. I mean, pardon the, pardon the French. But, um, but it was funny because I went, I, I got an appointment somehow with the, um, the head of Lipton's uh, M&A, you know, Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and I had this portfolio and I had 26 tins of tea all set up and I, I remember opened it, opening it up and I'll never forget what he said. He said, looks very Mill Valley. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just there, I was just back there, you know, just the other day because I, again, this is very, I would have never predicted this, but, you know, now 20 years later, I work with the company that owns Lipton. Uh-huh as one of my key limited partners in our uh-huh. investment practice. Um, and so I guess I've learned, you know, one of the things during that 20 years is that there are ways for entrepreneurs to interact with um, organizations at scale to amplify impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the same is obviously true of social entrepreneurs on the non-corporate side, mm-hmm. uh, that if you want to be a good social entrepreneur and you want it to expand, you have to work uh, with those with different uh, goals and values and so on and so forth, um, uh, just as you have in so many uh, examples. Um, in your, your present company, um, Physic Ventures, and I would encourage people uh, to go to your website because um, it's completely fascinating uh, what you do. And um, I thought, actually, maybe what we might do is, so you have this sustainable living investment practice, and um, there are the categories of the, the five subsectors, energy, materials, water, food and agriculture, and transportation. And then there are investment themes currently tracking consumer engagement, resource efficiency, Enabling Science and Technology. And then you have this really nice um, uh, matrix uh, where consumer engagement, you've got companies like Good Guide, which is uh, somebody we really respect a lot in terms of helping guide people to healthy choices. And resource efficiency, you've got Water Smart, and um, you know, so on and so forth. So there's this matrix and uh, then you have this wonderful analysis of what are the, you know, what are the factors that have led to rapid innovation, including a wave of technical innovation in synthetic biology, nanotechnology, catalyst development, increasing prices of commodities, regulatory pressures to reduce carbon emissions, and a drive towards sustainability. So I could go on, but that just begins to give people a sense of it. Um, tell us, um, tell us what your vision for Physic Ventures is. What are you really trying to do with Physic Ventures? The, 
the, the vision for Physic Ventures um, is to create a mainstream venture capital practice that's focused on health and sustainability that would generate really meaningful financial returns in the market while creating social and environmental impact in an integral way. And um, it's come out of a lot of work both as an entrepreneur and then in my work working with the Rockefeller Foundation and helping them figure out how to invest their corpus in a way that was harmonious or uh, integrated with their grant-making strategies. And then all the teaching that I did at Berkeley for 10 years. And I noticed that um, there's a lot of interest in you know, impact investing or social capital. But I've been frustrated and impatient that it's pretty marginal and it's small and it hasn't gotten to scale. And most of the people that control the bulk of the, the capital still sort of dismiss it as, as something that you know, doesn't work. Even major money managers find it very problematic um, with respect to fiduciary responsibility that an investment manager would pursue anything other than a financial return. Um, we don't have the data yet to show that you can actually do this. So I thought, uh, let me try. Now, ironically, so let me tell you a couple things. Physic, uh, the word physic means the science of healing in Latin. The, the firm was named after the Chelsea Physic Garden in London, which is, if you've been there, it's, the, it's the, one of the world's oldest repositories of medicinal plants. And they have, I mean, it's so, common wheels should probably have one, or you, maybe you already do, but they have, you know, they have a rheumatology garden and an oncology garden and a dermatology garden. And they have all the plants that are the precursors of mo modern pharmaceutical medicine and also ancient you know, sort of apothecary medicine. And this is a four-acre garden on the Thames that um, Sir Hans Sloan, who was a great entrepreneur and physician and philanthropist, gave to the apothecaries. So it was a very important garden in the history of the tea trade, too, because this is where the, the British Empire brought cuttings from Formosa, which is Taiwan, and propagated them and then sent them off to India for the British Empire to plant Tea. That's more than you asked mm. for on that, but that's no, where we got our name. But the, it's got meaning, and and it yeah. and it and it. It's also where the CFO uh, and the um, CEO of Unilever happened to live. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of a uniting place for us to engage in a partnership. Mm -hmm. So the idea was to, um, or or is to um, create a a a, a means. Uh, an investment strategy by picking places where there's an opportunity for disruptive or transformative in innovation. And venture capital tends to look for technology-enabled businesses that have the potential to scale relatively rapidly in a very capital-efficient manner. So, you know, investing in a, um, you know, in a technology platform that can help people learn how to save water is an example. That's water smart. Uh, a company called Novamer that we invested in is making a catalyst that can transform carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide into a biodegradable packaging material. So you can actually use a waste stream, reduce carbon footprint, and then create a BPA-free material um, for shampoo packaging or food packaging. Um, so with the right... Which is a huge deal. I mean, yeah. people don't appreciate 
the astonishing scale of the packaging industry and what a major contribution to toxic chemicals it is. Well, it's a vast, vast, vast industry. We were fortunate that, you know, so we developed this scope and yeah. yeah. utilizing some of the intellectual resources that Unilever brought, right. we got to sit down with the global packaging people yeah. and talk to them both about their pragmatic constraints, you know, what price right. points, what performance criteria, right. but also what's your global vision for packaging. I mean, right. you're a big company and you're growing bigger every year and you care about your impact and your footprint. So what right. are you going to do about it? So we went out and we were able to identify a scientist at Cornell who had just become a father. I'm going to tell you this story because it's really interesting how entrepreneurship happens. This is a guy who's a catalyst expert of basically figuring out how to turn one molecule into another molecule. And he wakes up one day with his new baby and realizes that he's throwing the diapers away. And he's thinking, I should be planting these in my garden. Why can't I do that? And it's because of this material that's in the diaper. It's the barrier that keeps the, the baby dry and the, you know, so, but it doesn't biodegrade. It's not, it's a, it's a toxic, non, you know, renewable <laughs> material. So he's like, I'm going to go figure out how to fix that. So he goes into his lab and spends several years working on this. And lo and behold, he starts to develop some inventions, patents them. And then one of our advisors, who was, is, a, is a chemist and a brilliant scientist, put us in touch with this and said, hey, I think this could be a packaging material of the future. So then we come in and we provide early stage venture capital to that company. And what we do is we put in a little bit and then try to get to a performance milestone and then put in a little more and add value. One of the ways we added value besides our money was we put the scientific team in touch with this global packaging group, started to talk and Unilever started to test the material. And then the stimulus came along about four years ago, and they were very interested. The in U.S. New government. The U.S. government, the Department of Energy, was looking right. to finance new materials. And Novamer was one of six companies in the United States to receive a stimulus grant. And the reason they got the grant, or one of the main reasons, besides the, the value of the technology itself and its potential you know, transformative impact, was the fact that they had the attention of a global multinational company working with them. Right. So we were able to orchestrate that. And now so this is a perfect example of entrepreneur, multinational corporation, and government correct. and a partnership that moves something forward. Right. And then probably ironically, um, mm -hmm. given, uh, I, I can't say this for sure, but it will not surprise me if this company is actually acquired by a foreign company. Mm -hmm. um, there are, believe it or not, our own chemical companies in the United States are not the most progressive um, in this respect. Uh, surprise, surprise. But there are some very progressive um, companies in, in Brazil and the Middle East and in, in Northern Europe that are very interested in next generation materials and what they can, and what they can do. So, but this is a this is an example of that what we would call value creation. So you start with a, a seed of a technology, you add capital, which enables you to hire the very best people and build uh, a pilot lab so you can prove the concept. You then bring that concept to the attention of somebody that can help make it scale. Then you get you know other resources involved, like the government in this case, and then you keep proving it out. You partner with other 
large companies to show and demonstrate that it actually works. And then lo and behold, you know, the venture um, capitalist and our investors, our investors are um, large corporations, some small foundations, and then some very large pension funds. And they really expect all of their money back and more some. They expect to actually make a lot of money. They're really driven by that. So there's no, there's no altruism, there's no philanthropy, there's no patience. There's not any patience. This is not patient capital. Mm -hmm. This is not capital that is thinking about saving the world. Mm -hmm. This is capital about, you know, from the corporations about creating competitive advantage for themselves. Um, and it's capital from pension funds that needs to pay, you know, my daughter's high school choir teacher's pension when she retires. So it's not about making the world a better place. The sort of Trojan horse piece of this is developing a strategy and being disciplined about only investing in things for us that would generate that social and environmental impact as an integral output of the investment practice. Right. I honestly, when we raised the fund, we didn't talk at all about impact. We didn't talk about um, double bottom line. We didn't talk about non-financial impacts. We were very concerned that people would misunderstand us as being soft or motivated by anything other than business interests. So we had to be particularly hard-headed in the investment um, community. Our original thesis was health, wellness, and sustainable living. And we actually took, this is five or six years ago, we had to take the word wellness out because institutional investors questioned that that was a legitimate investment sector. Now, I can tell you some good news. Five years later, the word wellness is you know, ubiquitous, and it's certainly regarded... Um, as an investment sector. Also, we were the very first people to use the word sustainable living. Other people were calling it clean tech, but now the clean tech guys that didn't do so well the last five years because they didn't pay attention to capital efficiency and they didn't pay attention to sort of how long it takes to develop markets, uh, they're now calling what they're doing sustainable living. Mm -hmm. So with this... Great introduction, first to the Republic of Tea and second to Physic Ventures. Let's move into a, a segment of the conversation uh, as advertised about food. And uh, you have a wonderful slideshow on your website that maybe you could sort of capsulize for us about the history of what's happened to food in the United States mm over a series of decades? What, what were the main themes? Could you describe that sort of history? What's, what's the trajectory of the food business been as you see it? Well, I think if we go, you know, if we go back 100 years, right. we had um, you know, basically a lot of small producers and a lot of local activity. Um, I think it, it appears to me that you know, post-war, post-World War II, there was great concern about feeding people and getting access to food and making food more affordable and more convenient. And then, so this was the sort of revolution in food technology and packaging technology and processing technology. And um, in many ways, if you go back and look at the advertising from that period, it was really 
emblematic of an American dream that people would be able to have these wonderful foods in cans and things that you know people who weren't proximate to uh, to local sources could now you know be fed in an affordable way. Um, if you look you know into the 60s, you see the introduction of all the um, the you know the appliances of convenience and the delivery of um, you know starting prepackaged food. So we had I think since the you know the 40s, 50s, 60s we had a just a tremendous surge in um, technological innovation, which I think I mean not not to defend the food industry, but I think I think probably it was well intended. I think you know I think it was initially about um, access affordability. Um, and um, and you know and value, uh, but it, it sort of it sort of run amok, right? And so in the '60s and '70s, I think people started to wake up, and we had the birth, obviously, of the uh, the, the resurgence of moving back into um, caring about where things came from and what what you know what was preserving them, and we had the birth of the natural foods movement and. That was a wonderful era that was catalyzed by a lot of entrepreneurs, and there was a lot of white space to innovate in that area. We had, obviously, I mean, this this part of the world is a real hotbed, and I think my, um, you know, my coming into the food business had a lot to do with with being in Marin. And um, the other thing that had a lot to do with it was that one of my best friends was Walter Robb. I don't know if you know Walter. He's now the CEO of Whole Foods Market. But Walter was running a little natural food store on Throckmorton in Mill Valley called Living Foods. This was back in 1990. And he was, I'll never forget, we had these long philosophical discussions. He was like, you know, there's this company called Whole Foods, and I have to decide whether I open this bigger natural market on Miller or I join with this company out of Austin called Whole Foods. I'm not sure what I want to do. Well, the rest is history. He joined with Whole Foods. We, he opened the first you know, Whole Foods in that Quonset hut um, on Miller. And um, you know, now that's a multi-billion dollar company. But it was entrepreneurs like that that I think were really well intended. And they created a distribution channel for this um, world, which we now call the natural foods world. In the, um, you know, in, so in the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, a uh, lot of entrepreneurs that had you know, come out of um, social movement, social action work, Ben and Jerry and, and Paul Hawken and Gary Hirschberg and, you know, oodles of people that started great companies all, all came out of sort of having strong ethical beliefs about the way things should be grown and described and sold. And, and um, so I think that was an incredible, incredible um, wave. And I think that's now, of course, crossed over. So I think from an entrepreneurship um, perspective, I like to look at where we can create crossover hits, where something's gonna start with a very passionate group of early adopter customers who are gonna go out of their way, sometimes even pay a premium for something early to get it to a scale that it then crosses over into the mainstream market. That's kind of an entrepreneurial lens to look at. So, through. and that's a, that's a wonderful lens, but talk to us a little bit about, you have another incredible chart about the consolidation yeah. of the food industry. Yeah, so what happens is 
So these big companies, then they wake up, right? They start waking up in the 90s and the 2000s. And I'll never forget when I was teaching at Berkeley uh, one day and I said to my class, did you read today that Odwalla was bought by Coca-Cola? And I had a class of 60 people and I, you know, half the class said, oh, you know, like, oh, there goes the company. And then the other half of the class said, oh, said, well, what, what's going on there? You know, these said, well, there it goes. There goes the product. There goes the values. They'll kill it. And I said, what's with you guys with the elation? Well, just think about how many more people are going to have access to fresh juice now. And maybe at that scale, they'll be able to make it a little bit more affordable so more people will be able to bring this home as opposed to us privileged, you know, people. So what happened was all these companies, these little companies got bought by big companies. And, you know, Unilever bought Ben and & Jerry's and Danone bought Stonyfield Farms and, um, you know, Heinz bought Celestial Seasonings and then lots and lots of other companies. And so it was... You know, I have, there's a, that chart you're that talking about. It's a chart. wonderful chart by a, a, a guy who used to be a professor at UC Santa Cruz. But it was an amazing, what, you know, consolidation of um, entrepreneurial energy into these big companies. And I think on one hand, we lost a lot of the authenticity of the movement. But on, 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 in other respects, some of these entrepreneurs became quite influential in these big companies. Like Ben and Jerry's created a really interesting structure with Unilever in terms of you know, their foundation and how they were going to get to kind of maintain their values and they'd have a separate board. Ben and Jerry's is the only company in the Unilever brand portfolio that has its own board of directors. Similarly, Gary Hirschberg at Stonyfield Farms became a member of their global management team and um, Danone appreciated that Gary brought a perspective that was of value to the consuming populace um, that, that they didn't want to turn their back on, that they actually wanted to learn a lot about. So that, that chapter sort of ended probably about ten, you know, eight or ten years ago now. And then I think the latest chapter has really been around... Um, food as a vehicle for health. I mean, as we've confronted the obesity and diabetes crisis, we've started to really understand the fundamental... I mean, we, a lot of us have understood this for many years, but it's become in the mainstream. And the importance of nutrition. Um, so food both as food for health as opposed to just calories or energy. And, and really food as a kind of transformative cultural um, icon, you know, and with, with what Michelle Obama has done is really interesting. One of the companies that I'm probably most proud of in our portfolio is one called Revolution Foods. Have you heard of that? Um, this was actually started by two of my students at Berkeley six years ago. It's quite remarkable. They were both um, graduate students in the School of Business. They had been involved in education and investment banking prior to that. They were hard-edged, pragmatic execution monsters, and they saw this problem with school lunches, and they went after a really difficult market. They started with one charter school in Oakland six years ago. Today, they're serving 140,000 lunches a day in five states. It's really remarkable. Um, it's, it, and and 
Talk about a tough business. Talk about making a school lunch for you know under four dollars, or and you know meeting all of these um, legal requirements and beating these big incumbent you know companies like Sodexo and Cisco and Compass that are basically big food purchasing organizations. That these two gals on a mission, you know, could do this, and they and now they've hit this wave, you know, and. They've hit this inflection point, and they're now competing for really large public school contracts. And now what's happening? Those big companies are paying attention. And want to buy them. They're going to want to buy them. And I think this is going to be one of the dilemmas, okay? So dilemma is, can they partner with a bigger company that will actually let them continue to thrive and grow and fulfill their mission? Um, or will they be forced to, you know, or in that situation, would they be forced to, to trade, uh, you know, profit motive over? Now, I want to just say, like, this company is a high-performance company. This is not a trade-off company. This is not, this is a company that makes profit <laughs> on a small margin. And all the more attractive. All the partners. more attractive to attract talent, to yeah. attract capital, yeah. to grow, to attract... You know, and they've, another thing that you might find interesting, Michael, is they've also been able to attract um, non-profit, non-dilutive financing. So there's a number of foundations that have said, gee, we'd like to bring this to New Orleans and we'll build your culinary center. We'll give, you, we'll give the money to a non-profit in New Orleans to build the culinary center to induce you to come here sooner than you would have. This is very attractive to the investors. We don't have to spend the capital that we put in for hard assets. So it's more leverage. I mean, I think this is another attribute of this, this sort of entrepreneurial venture capitalist looking for these leverage points. So you, when we were talking over lunch, you talked about your efforts in some instances to sort of write the constitutions for these companies so that the relationship of profit and value was sustained over time. And it strikes me that those same constitutional efforts are likely necessary at the point where something small and idealistic but that is working gets acquired. In other words, there are several points, aren't there? It's helpful. Where you want to... So how do you, how do you go about writing a constitution for a company about the relationship of profits and value. The key thing with the constitution or the founding documents is that the, the commitments that the company makes, they all have to manifest in a competitive advantage. They can't, they can't just be a nice to have. This is one of the problems that actually Ben and Jerry's had, is that they had a lot of aspirational goals but that they didn't necessarily make them a better company or a better competitor in the marketplace. So what I've learned is that, and what I try to do now is just foster the conversation so that the founders and the investors can, can talk about these values and that they get expressed. My, in my own experience, like with Republic of Tea, that founding document is still used by the company 20 years later. It's still on the website. It's still on the wall of the office. So it stands the test of time. But I think it's not something that you, um, I think, necessarily 
you know, engineer in at the exit line. I think it's something that you grow the company around. It becomes, in essence, the gene stock of the organization and the tenants of the organization. And I think you have to be really rigorous that if there are things that don't serve the, um, the, the sustainability of the business and its competitive advantage, then they're, they're probably non-essential. This word sustainability in business is really problematic. I was at a, an, an, an advisory board last week meeting for the Culinary Institute of America, and they've just created something called the Sustainable Business Leadership Council, and they've created a program with Harvard called Menus of Change, and what they want to do is influence chefs and other food professionals to change menus so that they embody the tenets of sustainability and um, health. But it's interesting, going around the room, people ask, well, what do you mean sustainable business? And you know, the business people will tell you, well, sustainable business means making sure my business is in business next year, which means I need to have a profit. So you know, we're still in a world where profit is, is driving us, but we're also in a world now where we know that there are great threats to profit by doing the status quo. And this is more critical than ever in the food system. People that, you know, big companies see that they're not going to be able to source the same materials that they've been able to do reliably because of climate change, because of water shortage. They, they can see the writing on the wall for, for their business models. And so when, when people at the top wake up to that, they're much more open to collaborating or partnering with, with entrepreneurs that would have otherwise been disruptive. So I think back to your earlier question, it's like, well, with Revolution Foods, um, there's also, there's been, you know, because of the generation of the natural food consolidation and those big food companies, a lot of them have sort of gotten a bit of humility. You know, the, some of the ones I've worked with, they know more what they don't know and they appreciate a lot more the entrepreneurial talent, zeal, and skillful means that come to, into creating categories and creating new sub-markets. And they realize, you know, what we're really good at, big company speaking, is scale. We're really good at operating at scale. We're really getting good at getting efficiencies and distributing things. We're not good at inventing new things. We're right. not good at changing consumer behavior. We're not good, because we have the, we have the innovator's dilemma. We're, we're the incumbent. We're trying, on one hand, we've got this part of the company protecting the golden egg, you know, and mm -hmm. on this side of the company saying, that golden egg ain't going to be around forever. We need to invent the next thing. So right. that's why this membrane with Physic of being an independent venture capital firm that can still dance with a big company is a very interesting model. Right. So you, one of the things on your website that particularly interests me is your interest in the wider adoption of personalized health solutions. And um, in our work, uh, both on the health side and the environment side, um, I know you and I share an interest in what's called functional medicine. And so for those of you who, who don't know, functional medicine uh, is an effort to look at food and supplements as, as, as medicine, a uh, very ancient idea. Um, but there's this huge technology process that is 
enabling us to recognize, number one, that different people don't get the same disease for the same reasons. They get the same disease, cancer, learning disabilities, infertility, autism, whatever it is, for different reasons. And given that they get them for different reasons and that there are differences, there's biochemical individuality, there's differences in people's genetic makeup and, and so on and so forth, it means that not only do people not get the same disease for the same reason, but to some degree, therefore, uh, they won't be cured by the same thing. So you're going to have to individualize uh, curative or restorative or preventative processes. So you have all these new diagnostic tests coming on that are enabling us to understand more about biochemical individuality or whatever you want to call it. And then this, just as in the stock market, this incredible fractionation of products, you have a fractionation of supplements and all kinds of other interventions. So you have this incredible complexity of what's in us and what we might seem to need as individuals, and then there's this fractionation of all the products that we might have and all the diagnostic tests in the middle, you know, purporting to demonstrate what we might need. And so in that context, if you share it to some degree, uh, you enter with this interest in investments uh, in personalized health solutions. So it would be very interesting to me to hear not only what you're doing in that field, but your sense of the broader vision of where functional medicine and food as medicine is headed. Because from my point of view, it's very complicated. Uh, it's very, very complicated to know whether all these supplements that are available and are a huge unregulated market with a lot of flakiness in it, really help people's health very much. They're very expensive. Uh, and, and, uh, and the complexity of the gene, environment, food, lifestyle interactions is completely awesome. So you're entering this market as somebody with values and vision, but also pragmatism. What do you make of that market? Well, the... the um so the, the innovations in this market are really the proliferation of biomarker tests right. and, of course, um, you know, genome sequencing and now right. microbiome sequencing that let us understand more about the individual characteristics of, indi of individuals and, 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 how the, uh, and, and how our systems work. And then the, the structural um, market forces are this... Um, this enormous unsustainable healthcare burden that we in the United States and other countries are carrying with 17% of GDP going to healthcare costs. So there's enormous pressure to reduce um, costs in the system. You know, one of the dirty little secrets of the pharmaceutical industry is that the drugs that are prescribed every day usually only work for 40% or less of the people that they're given to. And a lot of times we don't know if they're working or not, um, you know, in, in a systemic way. So there's enormous waste in terms of um, how medicines are prescribed. And we've been, a lot of us have been conditioned in this era to believe that the, the technological supremacy of science is going to heal all our, our needs. But from an investment perspective, I think what we're looking for, there, there's several areas where we're looking one is in the um, 
in the diagnostics area, as you mentioned, Michael, where tests, whether they're available to a physician or whether they're available to an individual, can help somebody in an affordable way make a better informed decision. So one of the companies we've invested in um, is creating basically a platform that would help a cancer patient and a cancer physician uh, make a decision about what type of medicine or treatment might be most effective and work for an individual's type of cancer and their own genetic makeup. Let's drill into that one a little bit. What is that one all about? Because we have such a big interest in cancer. Yeah, so this would, this, this would enable, um, I, I, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but talking generally, um, this would you know, a lot of a lot of therapies, as you well know, that are prescribed for cancer patients don't work or are ineffective, and some of them are quite toxic, painful, and damaging to people. If if you know, and if if you could know ahead of time whether something was going to be likely to work or not work, that information would be very useful. So this is a company developing tests to do that to basically match an appropriate therapy if it's available with an individual and their particular cancer. So this would eliminate unnecessary treatments, um, treatments that would be otherwise um, ineffective or damaging, and would eliminate the cost of going down those unproductive So there's several way. companies, I'm blocking on the names, I usually know them, uh, where you send some tumor material to them and they test the tumor material against different chemotherapies and tell you That's right. which ones it's responding to. This is to. part of that this development. Part yeah. of that yeah. field. Yeah. Okay. And that's a hugely important field. It actually, you probably know the history. The, the medical community thought it was very promising for a while. And then a decade ago or so, they decided rational therapeutics is the firm I was trying to think of which is one of the famous ones that does it. But then a decade ago, the, the mainstream decided that they didn't work in general, but there are a few firms that continue to offer the service, and there's a debate even in integrative oncology as to whether they're effective or not. The best right. people I know in integrative oncology debate whether the rational therapeutics and other uh, pretesting of tumor material actually provides benefits. So the firm you're in, investing in is in that space. Sphere, yeah, and it's, and it's, um, you know, it's very early. Right. It's very early in this field, but okay. I mean, I think that's the investment principle right. behind it. Right. Um, another aspect of personalized health where we work is looking at um, behavioral influence and behavioral change, because we know that a lot of um, the chronic diseases that people suffer from cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. diabetes, and obesity. These can all be ad addressed very effectively with lifestyle interventions. But um, as we know, breaking bad habits is really difficult. So we spend a lot of time looking at companies and techno technological approaches. There's a whole realm of companies that we look at called the quantified self that provide, those of you that have an iPhone are probably participating in some way with the quantified self, but getting, getting sort of feedback, if you will, not necessarily biofeedback, but feedback on your activities and how it's working for you individually to give you information to help you make better decisions. And so a lot of, you know, we've, we're looking at dozens and dozens of approaches where there's a diagnostic monitor that somebody might 
you know, wear on their wrist or, um, you know, that would help them understand their, you know, their activity level and their, their heartbeat and sort of integrating different bio, you know, information into a program that then provides some behavioral coaching, um, you know, whether it's something simple like Weight Watchers has of counting points or something more elaborate with an integrated system. These are all very interesting um, areas. They're all fraught with challenge, you know, in terms of innovation. We find that um, little company might have a, a keen invention and a kind of a cool approach, but they lack the, the sort of clinical efficacy that takes a lot of money to prove that it actually works, that there's some science there. And then they also lack the kind of brand credibility that very large established organizations have, like called the American Heart Association. You know, the American Heart Association people really trust it, but they're really slow at innovating, you know. So one of our thoughts is how do you get these large incumbents, we were talking about this earlier, how do you get a big NGO or nonprofit or membership organization that has a lot of influence to get more innovative and to contribute their expertise in a way um, into a small company? What I found more often than not is the big company says, oh, we can do that. And then they go off and do it and they spend 25 or 30 or 40 or $50 million, two or three years. And this is way more than we would ever spend. We would never, we would never, you know, we finance things with a couple of million dollars here and then, you know, 5 million more. And um, lo and behold, it fails. Why is it fail in a big company? Well, they're just, there's a lot of reasons, but more and more now they're interested in partnering with the entrepreneurial company. That's kind of our model. We call that network innovation. So we're looking for these unmet needs where we can create a solution bringing together the maybe the brand, maybe the distribution channel of a very large company to get to scale and the entrepreneurial innovation, the, the kind of vision and execution and packaging in this what we call the lean startup approach. Um, to get to market really quickly. And sometimes we fail. We, we fail frequently. And when was, we fail... I was going to ask you about that because... We want to fail cheaply. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because isn't the rule of thumb in, in um, venture capital that you may, that say two out of ten ventures may actually go to scale and, and become profitable? Is it varies by sector, but yeah, okay. I think classic portfolio theory would say, you know, you have one or two home runs, you know, in a portfolio of 10 companies, yeah. you have one or two that, you, you know, you hit it out of the park. Right. Uh, you have three or four that fail. Uh -huh. You have two or three, you get a single and a couple that get a double or a triple. Mm -hmm. So okay. it's some distribution. It depends what markets you're playing in. You know, if you're playing in the information technology market where gigantic returns have been made, like you look at, you know, Facebook yeah. Or, yeah. or Amazon or Google or these kinds of companies, the, the, the investors that invested in those businesses, all they had to do was, you know, I think it, Axel Partners put... Um, I think they put 12 million in Facebook and returned a billion dollars to their investors in three or four years. I mean, that's, that's a kind of a once in a lifetime return. Mm -hmm. We don't really play in that market. I mean, we're playing much more in a 
doubles and triples area. So our distribution looks more like, um, a, you know, four or five good, strong triples, maybe a home run or so in there, mm -hmm. a few losses, but a more, you know, a flatter bell curve, you know, in terms yeah. of the, the way we think about our portfolio theory. Now, when we were, were talking about different kinds of capital that you worked with, and, and, and tell me if I have this right, but, but you said to me that it really takes very often 15 years to have a, an idea really come to fruition. I certainly know that was true with Commonweal. It took us 10 years before we began to know what we were doing here, you know. And um, so 10 to 15 years makes a lot of sense to me. But then you're functioning in an environment where people used to give a company maybe 10 years to prove itself, and then it was five years. And, and now the sort of urgency of the return keeps increasing. And so in a space like the one you're working in, um, it seems like there's a need for a kind of partnership with what you can call patient capital, as well as um, financial markets capital and, and uh, other capital. Can you just talk about what is needed in that space? Yeah, I think particularly, I mean, as we go back to food, yeah. um, food is really uh, an area that requires systems change. And right. that takes, you know, probably takes a generation to mm -hmm. do that. It's not that well suited to venture capital. Right. You know, it's interesting. So we've, we haven't been able to make as many food investments because our fund is a 10-year fund we have five of that years to make the investments, and then we should be spending the next five years. But like us, most venture capital funds are lasting, have to last longer than 10 years because the companies don't come to fruition. And that's honestly really challenging the model. More and more money is flowing into what's called private equity, which is later stage. You've been hearing a lot about it because of Bain Capital and Mitt Romney. But it's much more of an orientation toward financial engineering and maximizing the value of an asset, a later stage asset, and then being able to sell it and reap the rewards. Venture capital really focuses on transformative sort of how do ideas turn into brand new businesses. So I think one of the challenges we have is if we're going to work with meaning and we're going to work with impact, we need more time. And to have more time, we need capital that has more time or that has reasonable expectations about what that capital should be able to return. And it's not in any way diminishing the expectation or the rigor of how the money is invested. It's just the time frame in which people need to make money. And I mean, this comes down to the question we were discussing earlier, how much is enough? How much is enough profit? How much is enough return for an individual, for uh, an institution, uh, for a corporation, for a pension fund? Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the big questions that still goes unanswered in our time. Mm -hmm. When you look out ahead at the U.S. and the global food picture right now and the place of um, sustainable food products um, and food practices, if you just sort of look out ahead in terms of your sense of where the world is going and what the 
what the choice points are going to look like. What do you see looking out 10, 15 years? Yeah, I see, I guess I see um, a lot of unevenness and uncertainty. I think there are, there, there's a wonderful movement afoot um, that, you know, a lot of us here get to participate in, which is, you know, for lack of a better word, called a local food movement. And local food entrepreneurship is just really taking off and it's got a very glamorous appeal right now and there are people um, you know moving to farmsteads and participating in you know farmers markets are at an all-time high around the country um, and there's a really interesting integration now with um, the, the food systems and technology so technologies that are enabling, uh, growers to be uh, more efficiently in contact with with consumers. Uh, there are there's a wonderful app that I like called Neighborhood Fruit that allows you to to post your tree on a site, and when it's got excess oranges, you can invite your friends to come pick it for you, and you you could enable a whole sharing economy around um, your food. Um, and so there are more and more very cost-effective tools coming into being that I think will enable more sharing for those people that have enough and maybe have more than enough and want to want to share it. I think that that is a very, I think, very romantic idea. You go to other parts of the world um, or you go to the Midwest of our country and you're going to see what we saw this summer. Tremendous pain, drought, you're going to see beef prices going up through the roof. One of the big discussions right now in all food service, including Revolution Foods, is how do we move uh, away from beef or what are our alternative sources of protein? We're going to be forced. People are not going to be able to afford meat, not just in this country, but around the world. We're going to realize it takes too many resources to grow these animals in the way that we've been accustomed. So I think we're going to have behavioral change forced on us through the food system. I mean, we already are through, the, through fish. I mean, those of us that have enjoyed fish, we don't see, we see half of what we saw just a few years ago. I mean, it's remarkable to me. So I think, um, and then you go to other parts of the world where there are burgeoning populations and aging populations and um, increasingly difficult you know, environments in which to grow crops. And we talked about this before, you know, there's, there's a lot of need to be able to grow plants and animals in environments that they're not, that they've not naturally evolved in those environments. So there's a lot of biotechnology now that, you know, people would argue is going to be imperative to feed the world. We're not going to be able to have, we're not going to be able to feed 9 billion people without some kinds of genetically modified crops and things. Now, you know, from my perspective, I feel like you've got the um, ethical issues around feeding people, and then you've got also the ethical issues about what, what happens to that food, what's the interactivity in the human body when you start changing crops. Um, you wanted to talk about this, Michael, so I'll bring it up. Um, you know, I think from a from an ethical perspective with respect to food, we've we've got to have labeling. You know, I, there's a proposition right now, 37. If you have a chance to weigh in on this, please do. But I think we we absolutely have to have trans transparency. I think transparency is transformative for um, a just society. 
uh, Good Guide, the company you mentioned before, was started by a professor at, um, an, of environmental science at Berkeley named Dara O'Rourke. Again, an epiphany happened at becoming a parent. You know, I think this is such an interesting moment of people waking up to the generational implications of their decisions, and that's really what we're talking about. When he was slathering his little daughter with sunscreen, his wife said, hey, do you know what's in that? And he's, a, you know, he's an expert in environmental materials and supply chain and toxicity, and he said, you know, actually, I don't know. What's in that? Why don't I know? Where can I go? How do I find out? And he's decided to start a company to do that. So if you're interested, Good Guide is an online tool that enables you to see the environmental health and societal attributes of over 120,000 products that we use every day. Foods, personal care products. Not only tells you about like what the ingredients are, what the environmental record and violations the company that makes it might have, but what's also the social practices. If you care about social justice and how something was farmed and how the farm workers were taken care of, this is a product that will give you that information. Now, honestly, it's been really slow to get adoption. Sure, there are early adopters and probably three-quarters of the people in this room are those people. But getting this used on a mass scale, I think what we learned was unless it also represents a part of the value proposition of why people make decisions, unless it sort of intersects the purchase path and provides value for a person, it's only going to be used by a small amount of people. I mean, I would put that in my top three learnings around entrepreneurship and health and sustainability is that things don't get to scale because they're the right thing to do or because the values are heading in the right direction. They get there because they create real economic value. I'm, I think you may know that Daniel Goleman, yeah. a friend and colleague in his book Ecological Intelligence, uh, really focused on an app that would enable a consumer to walk into a store and point it at a product and have all this information come right to them, uh, you know, at the point of purchase about... That's you know, Good Guide. Yeah, but d does Good Guide have the actual app? Yes. That, oh, okay, yeah. I didn't know... Daniel actually was an advisor to Good Guide, okay, so that was all written, that. Up, written yeah. up about yeah. that. Yeah. Now, so that so so Michael, I know it. I know it as a computer thing that I go to. Right. No, but if you, but I didn't know you can that put it, it on your iPhone. But here's the problem. But can you point it at a product? Yeah, in you the can score? scan. You can scan a barcode, and get that information oh, cool. instantly. So I can walk in. I go like this, beep, and then it tells me. Okay, really cool, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally impractical. Mm -hmm. Who's got time to do that when they go in the grocery store? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Honestly. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing we ran into, here's the other problem. You know, you really care about gluten. Right. But you don't really care about... Right. Um, maybe you care about... You care about health. You don't really care about environment, mm -hmm. let's say. Right. So, good guide gives you a rating and you're kind of like, oh, gee, that product didn't score that well or it's not really talking to me. Right. So the second generation of Good Guide was a personalization filter, going mm -hmm. back to personalized health. Another mm -hmm. aspect of personalized health is the idea that you can now tune those filters right. to your specific values. Mm -hmm. So if you care a lot about environment 
and a little bit about social justice mm-hmm. and some about health, but you really care most about taste or something, mm-hmm. you can tune that in mm-hmm. your own mm-hmm. criteria. That starts to become more interesting. And then also this idea of the scanning was a really cool idea, but nobody, you know, you walk through the store and, you know, mom's got the baby in this hand and got the shopping list here. You know, nobody's got time to do that. So it was kind of impractical. It was, I'd call that a technology in search of a user. (laughs) And this is a problem. I mean, we have a proliferation of technologies that don't really add a lot of value initially. They sound good, but they don't get adopted. They don't get to scale. You don't get to scale, you don't get impact, and you don't get return. Yeah. I want to open this up to some of the gifted people in this room for questions and comments. And there's there's chocolate available for every good question. You have to come up and get it yourself. (laughs) Yeah, well said that that the chocolate is for people who ask good questions. And Lexi's going to ask the first good question. I would like to go back for a minute to, to um, what you were talking about in terms of your own the, the physics uh, venture, and I don't know how free you feel to talk about the actual kind of specifics of of this big question about returns and and you know what the expectations are. Because you sort of describe going into this as as you know targeting your investors are typical investors who don't don't care about the other parts of the outcome other than the the actual financial. Um, gains from that, and how you know you're five years is that right into into this? So I, I'm gathering at this point you really don't have an idea about That's right. about where you're going to come out with that, but you already sort of hinted at the, that you know you may be pushing out the the sort of end uh, point of this fund. Did am I right? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit. Yeah, about yeah. that, and I, yeah. I mean I just. I want to kind of contrast this with a um, with an organization um, that I know of that I'm sure you've probably heard of Slow Money, sure. um, where they've kind of come at it from a different perspective, which is right up front saying it isn't sustainable to think of having the kinds of returns that have been typically built into, into the marketplace and that we, in order to be sustainable, we have to educate people about how it is going to be, uh, uh, the return is going to come further out and therefore it's going to be less of a return. It's the patient, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think those are wonderful models to contrast and I, and I have great respect for Woody Tash and Slow Money and I go to those meetings and I think it's really interesting and again, it's very nascent and there's a lot of people of means sort of starting to reassess their own whether it's their investment strategy or their philanthropic activity um, and their personal interests and they're trying to use their capital in a meaningful way. Um, It's not organized enough yet and it's not at a scale yet where it can really work, you know, and there, I think, meaning that we're not, the slow money movement, um, you know, needs to figure out, again, that how much is enough question. Um, We need to get predictable models of what, Um, kinds of tools can be used. I mean, one of the things um, I think that's interesting is uh, equity is not necessarily the most effective um, way to invest in the food system or in food companies. You know, debt may be more effective. Um, There may be all kinds of different methods to finance uh, food innovation and and longer term. So I'm really interested in that. The venture capital model um, is challenged right now. The whole the whole market is challenged, and 
You know, you say the investors, you, you said something like, well, they don't care about that other stuff. You know, what, what, what I found is they really care about it. They don't count it. So the chief investment officer at Calsters, she probably wouldn't mind if I told you this, but she said to me, we're a single bottom line investor. And she said that to me, I think, because legally, that's her responsibility. She's got to deliver a return for those teachers. But she said, boy, would my board like to hear about these companies, Revolution Foods and Recycle Bank and Gazelle and all these companies that are creating good jobs for people and improving health. The board cares about that. They care about the communities that their teachers, their members live in and the quality of life. They care all about that. They just haven't figured out how to integrate that into a financial calculus for return on investment. And I see that as the great frontier. I think when we figure out how to do this, and there are really smart people working on this, there's a group called SASB in San Francisco, which is the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is going to offer a counterpoint to FASB, um, which you know informs the SEC about what is of material consequence on, in a public company's reporting. So SASB wants to identify um, issues that have to do with sustainability risks and put those in the 10K annual reports of these companies so it becomes reported you know, to the public. Um, I find that really interesting. I, I think that um, you know, there are a few funds that I, people I know, um, there's one called Pacific Community Ventures in San Francisco that's been financed by wealthy individuals and some foundations that takes a little longer term approach. They've also focused on job creation in underserved um, areas as another outcome, you know, a non-financial but relevant outcome. Um, but we just haven't seen mainstream institutional capital gather around this kind of um, both-and investment thesis yet. My hope is and you know, continues to be that by demonstrating that we can do it, I think the only way we can do it, but we need more time. We need more time. And, and the markets are incredibly impatient. And in some respects, they're overextended. I mean, there are many pension funds that you read about right now that have a, quite a burden and they don't quite know what the investment strategy needs to be to meet the future obligations because returns are um, so challenged in so many sectors. So it seems like there are big adjustments ahead. And unfortunately, in many cases, the, the stewards in those positions, it's too politically difficult to do something dramatic so it just keeps getting postponed. I mean, we see that in our government every day. But I think this is gonna be, you know, I see big adjustments coming. So I think other collectives of capital, like Slow Money, I think that's really exciting. I, lo I love the idea of all the crowdsourced funding um, that's coming, Kiva and Prosper and Kickstarter and, you know, ways that people can participate with their money in, in catalyzing and financing innovation. And I think the trick in the future will be bringing 
a, you know, if you think of like a ladder of capital, like we, we've worked with some foundations like the California Healthcare Foundation. They're really interesting in financing maybe science and technology risk that a venture capital firm won't take because they, you know, they really, like one project we worked on was looking at asthma in inner city um, uh, areas, particularly children that are affected by that. And somebody had come up with a, an inhaler um, that has a GPS on it, and you know they could actually detect how many of these things were going off, and they could see what the environmental hotspots would be, and they could prevent, you know, emergency room visits or protect, you know, predict them. And you know, it's like, wow, that's a really cool idea. We'd like to invest in that, but the idea is so early, we can't take that risk with the money that we manage but we could work with a partner like a foundation that says, wow, this is right in our sweet spot of what we want to do. We have grant money. We'll finance the early stage of that and then hopefully ladder it up so later on the venture capital can come in and then the corporate partner can come in and take it to scale. So I think we're looking at these kind of collectives of collaboration of capital at different stages of, of um, invention. Other questions and comments? I wonder if you can talk a little more about the scalability idea with in food, in food production. Um, just because I, I sort of think that growing food is part of the, the natural system. And technology, when it's brought to it, can be helpful. Um, but is there sort of that maybe an underlying inability to really scale up? I mean, what, once you get to distribution or you're getting um, <coughs> processed products, you know, you're doing your stony field or you're doing Whole Foods or Amy's Kitchen or something, where you're having these sustainable companies um, scaling up. Uh, that I can I can see that and we've we've seen that happen, but it isn't one of the problems in scaling up in the actual production area. Isn't that really a problem because it leads to sort of more industrialization of the natural system? Yeah, I totally I I totally agree. So 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 if you're trying to build an entrepreneurial effect in for farmers, say, uh, people producing food. How, how does an entrepreneur look at that? It's a great question. I think you need a different business model. You need a sustainable business model. And you, I think you need a different kind of financing, too, because the venture capital financing, unless I, I think I forgot to say this before, but it counts on this exit. <laughs> counts on this exit event when everybody gets their money back and then some. And that, that moment in time um, is not conducive to food production, uh, in my mind. I mean, you could potentially have a new owner of that system, but growth... Of course, you, have, you can have profit. Yes. People can be successful. That's right. But how do you entrepreneur more effective, sustainable food production. I mean, it, you know, I mean, we, 
the organic movement around the world has had small farmers being successful, but of yeah. course it's also been taken over by very large concerns uh, who are able to distribute and, and grow in some size. But it's still so much a part of the national system that there's real limits, there's real yes. boundaries on... I think that's it's right. It's not like just saying, well, we can... We, there's, you can't, the right. there's absolutely limits to growth because you have yeah. natural resources. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with that. So you have to think... I think you have to think of it in a true systems context and you have to think of the market that way. You have to think about the inputs that way. I mean, I think there are opportunities for innovation. Um, there's certainly quality um, innovations that people are making, you know, in terms of their, their practices, their, their farming and horticultural practices. There's ways to save waste, you know, and eliminate waste. That's certainly an area. There's, you know, um, resource uh, optimization. So I think the entrepreneurial opportunities initially are around those kinds of things. Um, there may be, um, you know, efficiencies in getting the product to market and Again, eliminating the waste of um, you know perishable or unsold um, items, but it's a it's a very different world. I'm I'm working with a young woman now in um, at Stanford on something called Local Food Lab to really think about this, and she's running workshops for people that want to be entrepreneurs in the food system to think about these very questions and how to develop new business models. And I'm, I'm keenly interested in I don't think it fits our venture capital model, but I, I'm personally very interested, and I just joined her board of advisors. So that might be another place. Her name is called, it's called Local Food Lab. So if you go to Local Food Log, localfoodlab.com, you'll, you'll find out more about it. Let's take one more question, Ned. In the, in the environment of such extensive deleveraging that's, that's happened in the financial markets, I, I wonder, is it, as you look at what you are obliged to look at in, in terms of your capital creation, is it... I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, in, in midst of this, again, I go back to this vast deleveraging that, that, that's, that's taken place, that continues to take place, is it, is the, is the profit-driven, fast money world that you're part of, do these, I mean, it seems like almost that, that has to create chaos and, and crisis and, uh, or as uh, Naomi Klein says, uh, capitalism is a crisis-creating machine. And so, in other words, so that, that how do you, of course, well, obviously what you're doing is to try to make, you know, mitigate a lot of that, but it, it seems like worldwide there's this sort of flattening of the, of the capital world. And it seems like the, the, the hungry capitalist in that environment almost has to be a destroyer, I, I'm imagining if one looks at it broadly, and I'm not framing my question very succinctly, but I guess certainly you have to deal with that somehow. I mean, they're, they're, as, given that the, the change in the, the, the uh, economic environment is so profound that presumably that it's conceivable that, that the expectation of, of, the, of, the, of the hungry capitalist, if you will, may be just too severe for reality. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think we. You know, what I've tried to do, for lack of a better word, is a little bit like a Robin Hood 
um, theory of trying to f move resources from one place where they're ample and abundant into places where they're, they're underserved. And I kind of look at the markets. There are, there are creators and generators of value, and that's where we really try to focus. We try to focus on finding things that need to be invented and that can help people and help you know, personal and planetary health. And then there's a lot of people in the financial market and the people that you're talking about that focus on extracting value or making the value um, or you know, extracting value um, by trading something and oftentimes trading something that doesn't really exist <laughs> physically. Um, th this I find chaos making and, um, and, and you know, I think societally we have to really think about value, where value is being generated and where value is being extracted and we can't treat the economic system as if it's the same thing. I don't think we can have the same rules apply to those practices. And I think that's what, you know, big banks are fighting right now. And um, because when people are trading credit default swaps, they're not creating anything new, they're not creating any new value. They're just taking money off the table that happens to be there for a split second because there's an arbitrage opportunity. That's not creating value. The, one of the things that I find um, inspiring and hopeful is that you know when I started teaching at Berkeley in the late 90s, um, I got a lot of pushback on the social entrepreneurship program. I mean, somebody even wrote an essay in the um, paper about what are we doing here teaching tree-hugging subjects. Now, if you look at the graduates of most business schools, this next generation, the majority of the people want to do something that's meaningful and that adds um, value to the world. And so in 10 years, I think business schools have moved from a kind of extractive, um, self-centered mindset to one of much greater service, altruism, and impact. And I find that really inspiring. So, you know, um, if you want to get up, uplifted, go you know, go to one of these schools where they're having a social venture conference or... Um, you know, so I'm 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 hopeful that that you know that that we won't you know that that the stuff that's not sustainable will get fleshed out or flushed out sooner than later. And I think transparency fundamentally is a key attribute of that. So whether it's transparency in the food system or transparency in the financial system, that's what you know. I I don't know what Commonweal's doing in that area, but that would be an area where I would invite more action and activity mm -hmm. of how to foster that and, and implement it. Uh, well, in closing, let me ask you to imagine that we were able to convene a community of um, foundation investment managers uh, and that you had the opportunity as introducing and introducing yourself to them to present um, the value proposition that you would hope they would reflect on, not only for your company, but for the field. What, what would you say to a community of um, thoughtful foundation investment managers who cared about social and uh, environmental issues 
and also had responsibilities for the bottom line. What, what would you say to them? I would say, can we find a common ground of interest where there is strategic relevance to your mission and a viable investment marketplace where we can invest in a broad and diversified portfolio of companies to create the kinds of returns that you need and, and desire and be realistic that not every company that we invest in is going to be strategically directly relevant to your mission. The, the, the challenge that I found with foundations is the kind of idiosyncratic, egocentric or orientation to very narrow interests that prohibit them from investing in more, in broader systems changing efforts. I'll give you an example of a very large foundation started by a food company that you know well. They said, our investment mandate fits very well in health and sustainability. We're very interested in young children and particularly those that are disadvantaged. But our, our, the way our, our charter is written right now, we have to invest in these three cities. That's where our money goes. There's not a venture capital investment to be found in those three cities. So in that sense, they're prohibited from investing in, in the kinds of things we do. So to back to your question, it would be to broaden people's thinking, to be a little bit more lenient about the scope and strategy that they would embrace and go for a systemic change and then partner with other foundations. I think that's been one of the parts, places that I've found most difficult. Venture capitalists always syndicate investments. We never do it by ourselves. We always do it with other people so that we have enough money around the table to go the distance or we can afford to lose everything. So we don't bet everything on one company. We put a little bit in a lot of companies. And in order to do that, we need co-investors who see the world in a similar way and want to invest in places where we share um, you know, aspirations about the upside. Foundations could think more effectively that well, you know, as well. So that, that's what I would try to say. Will Rosenzweig, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure.